if, as we would argue from a process perspective, there is really a reality there, and we're all part of that reality in some fashion, and we're all perceiving that reality, then some of the same insights should emerge independently in different parts of the world, rather like with the physical sciences, right? So, so if uh, something like the concept of Brahman uh, is emerging in India, then something like that should also emerge in ancient Greece and in China and in you know Mesoamerica. And lo and behold, you know you have uh, a thinker like Whitehead, who uh, again was not steeped in Indian philosophy, as far as I know, sounding like an Indian philosopher very often. The conversation and process that follows is so interesting. You'll be interested in it as I am as well. A lot of people think of process theology as a primarily Abrahamic, Christian, Jewish, Muslim, and yet they sense, and rightly so, that there's a strong connection, an affinity with Asian ways of thinking, South Asian, Asian and East Asian. And today we're going to get to hear a Hindu process theologian, Dr. Jeffrey Long, who's going to explain to us how he became a Hindu, what Hinduism means to him, what he most appreciates about Hinduism, how it's connected with process philosophy and theology, and his own future hopes for our planet. Enjoy. So Jeffrey Long, it's great to have you today in this podcast. I've admired your work for years and know you personally, so I admire both the one-on-one and the text that I get to read, thanks to you. One of your well-known books is Hinduism in America, out in 2020, and it's very influential today. Uh, You're also an excellent teacher at Elizabethtown College in Pennsylvania, and you are a Hindu process philosopher, and that's what we'll be exploring today. If you would uh, begin by telling the story of how you discovered Hinduism and became a Hindu. Okay. Thank you very much, Jay. And thank you for your very, very kind words of welcome. And it's it's wonderful to be here. I'm grateful to be here on your podcast. So my journey with Hinduism started early in my life. I was not born Hindu. Uh, the vast majority of Hindus are born to the tradition. Of course, that's true of most religious traditions. I think John Hicks says it's about 99% of the time uh, we, we stick in some fashion with what we're born into. But I was born into the Roman Catholic tradition and uh, grew up in a small town in Missouri and uh, really quite far from India or even the kind of cosmopolitan environment in America where you would expect to run into to people from India. Which 93% of Hindus are, are uh, people who live in India. So you, you would expect um, my encounter to happen in, in a much more cosmopolitan environment. But uh, no, I was in a small town. I was growing up Catholic, and uh, I was pretty devout also growing up. I uh, had intended to be a priest from a pretty early age. So I was a religious Catholic. Um, what happened, um, why I ended up going into the Hindu tradition instead, uh, goes back to my childhood. My father was in a really very bad accident. Uh, when I was 10 years old, about to turn 11. And uh, that was a devastating experience. He was really left very badly incapacitated. Uh, The family went through uh, really quite an ordeal for about a year and a half. And then he passed away in uh, 1981. I was 12 years old then. So uh, it was uh, it was quite an ordeal. Actually, he uh, 
uh, ended up taking his own life uh, because the injuries he suffered were so profound that they really uh, prevented him from living the kind of life, having the quality of life he wanted. So this really set me on uh, a spiritual path. Uh, I became very preoccupied with the question of the afterlife, what happens, if anything, after this body dies. I firmly believed at the time that um, my father uh, was actually freeing himself from the prison that his body had become. And if your body can become a prison, that suggests that you aren't your body. There is you, and then there's this body that you're in. And I believed that intuitively from a very young age. And of course, that's also a teaching in Christianity. We have the soul and the body. And then uh, reflecting further on the afterlife, though, I, I found I was not entirely satisfied with the account uh, I was receiving from the church. And I don't say that to offend anyone uh, from a Christian background. This was just my own personal thought process. And uh, it's funny, I used to say the, the thing I'm about to say, I used to say a lot. And then just a couple months ago, I saw that John Hick, uh, the philosopher John Hick, had said the same words. And I was very pleased to hear that, that he was using the same words I was. I didn't feel that I knew anyone who was bad enough to go to hell or good enough to go to heaven. Um, my sense of the afterlife was that, you know, based on Christianity, we have this eternal, ongoing, forever afterlife after we pass on. And whatever decisions we make, whatever we do in this life determines that. So you're either in heaven for all eternity or you're, you're damned for all eternity. And uh, I've always been fond of science, and I, I was a big fan of Carl Sagan's cosmos at the time. You know, he has the cosmic calendar where the entire history of the universe is compressed into a calendar year. And all of human history is like the last couple seconds before midnight. And, you know, I was thinking, you know, after we pass away, eternity is even longer than the cosmic calendar, right? It will just go on and on and on. So it didn't make sense to me that someone with all their imperfections uh, would either immediately go to heaven or that they'd be condemned to hell after one lifetime. My intuitive sense was that if if we are in a just universe at all, uh, that the next life would be kind of like this one, a mix of joy and sorrow. I had a strong sense that we're here to learn lessons, and we're here to per perfect ourselves, but that clearly takes longer than one lifetime, because we meet so few people who've come anywhere near that. I do think some have, but uh, not many. And so, I, I, of course, in the Catholic Church, there was the doctrine of purgatory, which made a lot of sense to me. But then the question purgatory raised was, you know, if we still have all this work to do after we die, what were we doing here? What were we doing in this life? So I started thinking, maybe we're in purgatory now. Maybe we just keep coming back until we figure it all out, until we reach that that highest understanding that we're striving for. So this became my personal belief. And as I said, I was a devout Catholic, but I was also very independent-minded. And my family was like that. Uh, th they were not dogmatic about really anything. And so uh, I uh, was free to explore different beliefs, different interpretations. And around the same time, I started becoming aware of India and Hinduism through popular culture. And in fact, my book on Hinduism in America is uh, largely a, a big part of it is about that, how Hindu themes have come into uh, Western pop culture. And uh, my dad had been a fan of the Beatles, and I was a fan of the Beatles, and I loved their music, and George Harrison especially. And listening to his music, of course, he was very drawn to Hinduism and was fascinated with India. So that fascinated me. 
And then uh, it, about a year after my father had passed on, the movie Gandhi came out, and I saw that. And I was Gandhi made a very powerful impression on my mind. I just I thought th- this everything he was teaching made sense to me. And I started reading anything I could get hold of about Gandhi. Uh, I became fascinated by India and Hinduism. And this was not directly connected in my mind with these thoughts I was was having about the afterlife. But uh, what what eventually happened was this. Uh, I kept seeing references uh, in Gandhi's writings and in George Harrison's songs and album cover art and so on to the Bhagavad Gita. And I started thinking that would be a, a an important book to get hold of. And it wasn't something easily available in the small town in Missouri where I grew up. But as 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 uh, fate would have it, I ended up uh, going to a flea market uh, held in the parking lot of the local Methodist church, which uh, my grandmother attended. My grandmother used to uh, make arts and crafts and sell them at these craft shows, and she would also buy things there. And I would go and help her, and I would also find old uh, comic books and sci-fi paperbacks and things like that at these uh, flea markets. So I was there looking for treasures, and uh, I saw a table that had uh, you know a bunch of magazines on it. So I thought, well, that looks promising. And right there on the top was the Bhagavad Gita, just as if it had been placed there in my path. And so I picked it up, and uh, the first picture that I saw, I, I opened it, you know, at random, seemingly at random. And there's a painting in there. There's a, this was the ISKCON translation, the uh, Prabhupada translation. Uh, and it has these very brilliant paintings, bright paintings uh, that illustrate it. So there's this painting of a man who had died. He was surrounded by his mourning family. And in the distance, there was a Hindu monk who was sort of looking at them uh, with uh, compassion, but also with, with some detachment. And at the bottom, it read, the wise lament neither the living nor the dead, and it gave a page number. When I saw that picture, it immediately grabbed me because I, th- th- that's my life, right? That was that was my, my father, my family, our whole situation was encapsulated in that picture. So I turned to the page number indicated, and it's the part of the Bhagavad Gita where uh, Lord Krishna is explaining to Arjuna, the, the hero of the Mahabharata, the much longer story that the Bhagavad Gita is part of, he's explaining to him that the, the soul is immortal, it does not uh, pass away when the body passes away, and that we have nothing to fear from death, because uh, just as someone casts off old and worn out clothes and puts on a new set of clothes, so the soul casts off the body and takes on a new one. And this, it made so much sense to me. And it rang so true with the, the, my own thought process at the time that it was really just a major transformative experience finding that book. I mean, here were what I thought were my own thoughts being uh, reflected back to me in this book from thousands of years ago from the other side of the world. So I was, I was just absolutely hooked that I had, I had wanted to learn everything I could about it. Um, I finally found a metaphor that, that helps me explain to people what I was feeling in, in the parking lot that day. Uh, I, I tell people it's, it's like uh, being an extraterrestrial who was raised by humans and then finding an artifact from your home planet, you know, kind of like in the old Superman movie when <laughs> when uh, Christopher Reeve Superman finds the crystal from Krypton, you know, that's how I felt finding the Bhagavad Gita. And uh, to, you know, make a long story short, I uh, just from then on, I took a very strong interest in Hinduism, uh, world religions generally, too. I, I read the Quran, I read the Tao Te Ching, I read the 
Dhammapada, I wanted to learn everything I could of the wisdom of the masters because I was still a devout Catholic at that point, but I had also come to believe that there was deep truth to be found in many religions, and I wanted all of it, right? I wanted to soak it all up. So I found things that were insightful and that inspired me in many traditions. But the one I kept being drawn to again and again was the Hindu tradition. Um, I went from, uh, graduated from high school, went to college at Notre Dame, and was still thinking of being a priest at that point. Uh, but I realized while studying Catholic theology with some of the best minds in the church that uh, I was just way too heterodox <laughs> in my thinking to really find a home there. Uh, I, I realized uh, if I were to become a priest, I would either have to not talk about what I really believed, which I uh, people who know me say I'm like physically incapable of doing that. And um, I, uh, or I'd just be one of those cool radical priests who's in trouble all the time. And I really didn't want that either. I wanted a peaceful life. You know, I wanted to be part of a tradition that really would sustain me. I, I, I really began feeling, um, I, I still have a great fondness for the Catholic Church, but I, I, I no longer felt it was really mine. It was not my place anymore. And uh, I met a professor who was a devotee of a Hindu spiritual teacher. And uh, every Tuesday evening, he would have a gathering. It's called a satsang uh, at his house. And we'd, we'd watch a video of his guru giving a talk. We'd do some chanting, Vedic chanting, and then meditation. And then afterwards, there was tea and cookies and conversation. And I just, that became my church. I, I felt right at home with the ideas that were being discussed and, and even just the aesthetics of, of Hinduism, the, the music, all of it really drew me. Then I went on to graduate school uh, at, at Chicago, University of Chicago, and that's where I met my wife. And uh, she, uh, she now teaches at the same college where I do, as she's fond of saying she's an Indian teaching Japanese in America. Uh, and uh, so she grew up Hindu. She's from India. I went to India. I lived there for almost two years uh, while I was still a graduate student. I then became a visiting student where she was teaching, which was uh, Jawaharlal Nehru University in uh, Delhi. We got married there, and then we came back to America. She started teaching uh, at DePaul University for a while. I finished my PhD and then uh, got my job in Elizabethtown, and we came here to Pennsylvania, and she got her job uh, shortly thereafter. And when we got married back in India, we had a Hindu wedding, and I actually had the opportunity to formally join the tradition, which I did. We were married through, there's a Hindu reform organization called the Arya Samaj, and they actually have a ritual by which you can join the Hindu tradition. It's, it's actually a combination of two very ancient rituals. There's the one by which you receive a name. It's usually given to you when you're a baby. And then there's the, the sacred threat ceremony, which normally happens when you're about 12 or 13. It's uh, roughly parallel to confirmation or bar mitzvah. And uh, I got both of those done at the same time and then got married uh, you know, 30 minutes later. So, uh, But that was my formal joining of the tradition. And then uh, fast forward a little bit more in 2005, um, shortly before 2005, my wife and I, we had always been drawn in particular to the teaching of Ramakrishna and Swami Vivekananda. Ramakrishna was a sage, lived back in the 19th century. Vivekananda was his chief disciple, and he was actually the first Hindu monk to come to America and develop a following in America. And uh, we were both always drawn to his teachings, and we met a monk from that tradition, and uh, we asked if he would be our guru, our 
feature, which means uh, we would essentially formally join that particular lineage. And uh, he agreed. And then in 2005, we had our what's called Diksha, our initiation into the Ramakrishna Vedanta tradition. And that's the, I guess you could say, denomination of Hinduism that I've been part of all these years. No, that, that is a great story. It makes such sense. And I appreciate I appreciate the story of your father and how, how it was precipitated by that. Yes. I took courses in the world's religions and read Houston Smith's The World's Religions and that first chapter on Hinduism, and it was so compelling. Yes. And something in me said, I think Houston Smith really loves Hinduism. I mean, in all he, he enters into all the traditions, but that chapter on Hinduism was so good. Yes. But what appealed to me there was the, you know, the idea of many paths to one truth, um, the analysis of human psychology, et cetera. But it wasn't so much reincarnation. It wasn't life after death. That wasn't the issue. And it's interesting to me that that was for you. That was your pathway into that. Yes. Let, let me ask you, though, there is so much to the Hindu tradition. Can you name three things that you just plain love about it? that you find inherently beautiful. Sure, sure. In fact, I can name many more than three, but I'll keep it to three <laughs> for the purpose of time. So one, I mean, we've already talked about reincarnation and, and karma. Uh, it just makes so much sense to me. In fact, uh, and I'm not alone, um, the great German sociologist Max Weber uh, analyzed the idea of karma and rebirth, and he described it as the as a logically perfect theodicy. That was his uh, account of it. That's my sense as well. And, and it fit with certain intuitions I had, just feelings of having of of having been around longer than than this body's been around uh just sense of connection with certain ancient periods of history and and so on it just resonates with me on all levels so that is definitely one uh the other which you just kind of mentioned uh when you were and houston smith's chapter by the way this was one of the first things i read uh that really started pulling me into the tradition as well and i have now i have good friends who knew him personally and he was very drawn to uh vedanta uh to hinduism but vedanta of course, Hindu philosophy. And he also loved Zen and he maintained his Christian practice also throughout his life. But it's the pluralism, the idea that there are many paths to truth, many paths to uh, the infinite. And um, one of the things that bothered me, I would say, growing up was uh, uh, you know, Missouri is, well, you've taught in Arkansas, right? It's sort of, it's the Bible Belt. And growing up Catholic in Missouri was, uh, a little rough sometimes because uh, there were a lot of people who said, oh, Catholics are going to hell, you know, Catholics worship idols, uh, etc. cetera. Uh, same thing they say about Hindus, actually. And uh, so from an early age, I found that I would encounter people who were who would kind of threaten me with those things. And then when they found out I was a weird Catholic who was like reading about Hinduism, and then they just knew I was I was damned. Right. So uh, I, I encountered that. And I remember one of the first things I read about Gandhi, there, there, there was this little book that Richard Attenborough, the director, put out of Gandhi quotes after he put out the movie. And there's one where Gandhi says, uh, religions are so many roads to the same destination. What does it matter what road you take so long as you reach the goal? And to me, that was so much more in tune with what I felt that Jesus was teaching, uh, as I understood it, you know, that God is love, that God loves all of us. And I thought, well, if God loves all of us, then 
God loves Hindus, Buddhists, atheists, Muslims, Jews, Christians, not just one group of people or one civilization. And uh, and again, I said, like I said, I've always been drawn to science and, and uh, kind of a rationalistic bent. And uh, I thought it, it wouldn't make sense for the great truths of existence to only be available to one culture. If they're universal, people are finding them everywhere. And uh, uh, one of the books I read early on in my journey was Aldous Huxley's The Perennial Philosophy. And, you know, I really love that. It's like, look, there are all these different voices saying not exactly the same things, but really kind of speaking of a universal truth. So that is uh, the so rebirth and then the, the pluralism. Um, I used to use the term religious pluralism. I now say worldview pluralism because there are all these non-religious worldviews and people who don't define themselves as religious that also seem to be onto something. So that's a big part of Hinduism. It goes all the way back to the Rig Veda. The oldest Hindu scripture says, Ekam sat which means truth is one, reality is one, but the wise speak of it in many ways. So that really speaks to me. And then uh, if I had to pick a third thing uh, of the many, many, many <laughs> possibilities, um, I would mention that, uh, that Hinduism is not only a tradition that involves faith, uh, that is, you know, the belief in things we have not seen, but it also has methods for actually seeing those things and experiencing those things directly. So through the practice of meditation, for example, uh, one can have experiences that um, confirm essentially what many of the things that, that these ancient traditions talk about. So I have had, uh, you know, and here's where people will decide if they haven't already decided I'm kooky, they'll, they'll decide it at this point, but I've had what I would call paranormal experiences. And uh, I've looked at them from different angles and taken into account the possible kind of physical physicalist accounts that could cause them to have happened. But um, th that's not really adequate to those experiences. Right? Like I've, I've had some experiences that confirm for me certain things that I believe to the point now where I, I sometimes joke that it would take more faith for me to maintain skepticism about those things than to just say, yeah, this stuff happens because uh, it does. you know. And uh, in fact, uh, there's another scholar in my field. Uh, I, I knew him where our paths crossed in, in grad school, Jeffrey Kripal, who's written a lot recently about people who've had these experiences uh, just inexplicable by science as it's currently configured. And he's reached the point where he's, uh, I wouldn't say a uh, a believer in the sense of believing in some specific account of how these things happen. But he said, these things happen and they aren't explainable through a materialistic account of, of reality. Well, Jeffrey, let's turn to process thought. And, and you present a kind of compelling case uh, to my mind. I mean, I can get into that. Yes, I follow those three things. Yes, I follow that story. Uh, who needs process? Right, right. We're doing just fine. Thank you very much. Right. And not that anybody needs process, but why in the world did you turn to process philosophy as a framework in terms of which to think about these things? Right. Very, very good question. So that goes back to my graduate school uh, days at Chicago. Uh, I first studied process under uh, Franklin Gamwell. Uh, his friends call him Chris Gamwell. Uh, brilliant, brilliant 
scholar and teacher introduced me to Whitehead and uh, he, he gave this wonderful Whitehead course. And then a few years later, I came back and audited the same course just because I wanted to uh, keep absorbing whatever I could from him and, and from Whitehead. So why? So the this gets a little more into, I would say, my uh, field of, of academic research more than my sort of personal spiritual journey, which we've really been talking more about. Uh, there was a big emphasis when I was being trained in the study of religion on theory. And the University of Chicago, of course, is famous, some would say notorious for its emphasis on the theoretical. You know, you need a you need an established scholarly framework in terms of which to situate your work. And I was grasping for that. And I was finding that the theories of religion and the philosophical frameworks that were available, from the West, right? What what I needed to utilize as a scholar uh, weren't quite up to the task of what I really wanted to do, uh, which of course I now know was Hindu process philosophy. But uh, when I read Whitehead, I thought, okay, this is this is incredible because here is someone who I don't think he was very deeply trained in or aware of Asian traditions. He clearly had some awareness and he makes references to Buddhism uh, with some frequency uh, in his writings, but he's steeped in Plato and he's steeped in the enlightenment, meaning the Western uh, enlightenment and Kant and the post Kantian conversation. And I, as I studied Whitehead, I thought, Oh my goodness, this is a vocabulary for expressing these thoughts and conveying these ideas in this model of reality that I find it expressed very well in Hindu traditions, but which if you're in, entering into a Western academic conversation, you need to have, you know, if, if people aren't already familiar with Hinduism or with Sanskrit or, or with, with uh, Indian philosophy, you need categories that people can latch on to, right, with their minds, that they can understand. You need to enter into the Western philosophical conversation. Now, my non-process friends in the field sometimes tease me about that. They said, okay, you wanted to find something that you could use to translate Hinduism to the Western world, and so you picked this philosophy that itself needs to be translated sometimes to the Western world, <laughs> because not every one knows when you're talking when you're talking about prehensions and concrescences and so on. <laughs> you have to explain that too. But it, it, it rather like my experience with the Bhagavad Gita, like process and reality just made sense to me. And in fact, there was another Hindu thinker that I read around the same time, Sri Aurobindo, uh, a very famous work called The Life Divine. And Aurobindo, I think, beautifully synthesizes. Uh, Hindu and Western philosophical themes, and he's, he's equally steeped in both. And the model of reality that, that comes forth is pretty close to process, or, or it's a variant, you could say, of process. So what I found is uh, basically in the process tradition, uh, natural allies, as it were, in articulating a lot of what I wanted to articulate from a Hindu perspective, uh, it, was, it was also there and was also present. I also found the process does something else very nicely, which is the following. Um, again, going back to the idea of universal truth, if, you know, if, as we would argue from a process perspective, there is really a reality there, and we're all part of that reality in some fashion, and we're all perceiving that reality, then some of the same insights should emerge independently 
in different parts of the world, rather like with the physical sciences, right? So, so if uh, something like the concept of Brahman uh, is emerging in India, then something like that should also emerge in ancient Greece and in China and in you know Mesoamerica. And lo and behold, you know you have uh, a thinker like Whitehead, who uh, again was not steeped in Indian philosophy, as far as I know, sounding like an Indian philosopher very often. And so it almost provides a kind of independent confirmation of many of the things that are there in Indian philosophy. Because like, look, this guy came up with kind of the same thing uh, coming out of the, you know, post-Enlightenment, post-Kantian reflection on, and you know, just the fractured civilization that Whitehead inherited that we continue to, to live with. Uh, but I, meaning art, religion, philosophy, ethics, these have all become somehow sundered from one another. And process is a unifying vision, which really aims to tie it all back together. And I think that's what you find in, in traditional societies like Hinduism, uh, like, like that of India. And something else I find compelling about process is uh, something David Ray Griffin uh, wrote, uh, his characterization of process as constructive postmodern thought. Uh, that really attracted me as well. The, the kind of deconstructive mode of postmodern that was very big at Chicago when I was in grad school, you know, the 90s uh, was all, you know, Derrida and, and so on. And, uh, and, and that's all good. I mean, I, I, I think there's a lot of insight to be found there. But again, I, I found some of the Western philosophy, this is a huge generalization, but it just seemed to be a dead end, right? Uh, because it was wedded to the dominant materialist paradigm. And certainly David Griffin's take on Whitehead and on process shows a, another way, right? There is a third way that is not simply going back to pre-modernity uh, with all the problems that comes with that, uh, nor is it simply persisting with the dominant consensus of modernity, but it's envisioning something that takes what's positive from both of those and goes beyond them. And uh, so that's another thing I think it really drew me about postmodern, constructive postmodern thought, right, as a, as a way of thinking of process. So, Jeffrey, let's, let's go straight to the question of God and how Whitehead presents God and how you as a Hindu understand God and what that word means. And so in Whitehead's thought, as you know, he speaks of an ultimate reality of which absolutely everything is an expression. And he names that creativity. Yes. And he says that it's uh, neither good nor evil. It has no, no preferences. It's not an it to have preferences. It, does, it makes no decisions. It's not an actuality. And yet anytime you see an actuality, it's an expression of it. He compares it to Aristotle's prime matter, except devoid of the notion of passivity. Right. And then he's got this concept of God as the primordial expression of creativity, the kind of first instance, not temporally, but the deepest instance thereof. And later on in process and reality, that primordial expression becomes very personal, a, a loving presence, a companion to the world sharing in the joys and sufferings of all. Now, for my part, when I think of Whitehead, personally, I think of his notion of creativity as something like some renditions of Nirguna Brahma. Yes, yes. And I think of his rendition of God best understood as something like Hindu renditions of Saguna Brahma. Right, right. How about for you? How's my take? Number, you know, 
Is it okay to think that way? But give it to me from your perspective, to the personal and the transpersonal. Sure. No, your take is fantastic on that. And this is why I sometimes tell people that Whitehead translates very well into Sanskrit, because uh, he's, he's sort of looking for words for these things that the Western tradition often had not really talked about. Because, And, and of course, Hartshorn's very good on this topic, how the attempt was to just put everything into the concept of God. But Whitehead makes this differentiation between the non-personal or transpersonal, impersonal, I don't know if it's quite right, but uh, definitely, uh, well, much of what goes into this concept of nirguna in Sanskrit and Hinduism, that not characterized by any limiting quality, right? And so uh, that is very close to the idea of Brahman, uh, as uh, certainly in the Advaita Vedanta tradition, Brahman as it is to itself, right? Um, completely beyond the realm of time, space, and causation. One difference I see between process thought and Advaita Vedanta is in Advaita Vedanta, the preeminently real is that which is beyond time, space, and causation. Whereas for process thought, it's really the reverse. When things are actualized, then they're in relation and, and so on. But interestingly, if you look at the majority of the schools of Vedanta, other than Advaita Vedanta, they're pretty much at one with process on this. They they also affirm the importance of actuality and of the supreme actuality, the divine actuality, which can be characterized in Hindu terms very much as you were characterizing uh, God, according to Whitehead, a loving personal reality who makes manifest, who, who is the supreme embodiment of that principle of creativity, that Brahman, which is beyond time and space, and uh, not only embodying it, but you know, making it available as something to be experienced by all beings. And uh, from a religious perspective, uh, as Hindus, we're invited to be in a relationship, right, in a of bhakti, of devotion with that divine reality, to enter into that that relationship. And in that way, I see there's a a close correspondence with Hinduism and most forms of Christianity, right? That that the practice is very much about a relationship with the divine, and that divine reality is is uh, yes, very much as you described. So um, let me ask a follow up then, or a couple of follow ups. As I understand Whitehead, there are two ways that the supreme deity is of present in human life, and one is as an inwardly felt lure toward fulfillment, the technical terms is initial aims. And they're adapted to each circumstance, but you can understand it as kind of a lure toward wholeness. And it's a beckoning presence. You can even think of it as kind of my true self, but I'm but, but more than me, something like that if you wanted to. And then, there, then there's the notion of, of the divine, not as a luring presence, but as a companion to, to the sufferings and joys. I like to speak of it as a deep listening, it's not luring, it's it's with, it's with in an empathic way. Are there analogies to that in Hinduism, or can Hinduism help me better understand that? Oh, very much so, very much so. So in terms of the initial aim and that, that deep inward experience of the divine, uh, there are even terms for all these things. So we, we, we speak of Atman, of course, self, but then if you want to differentiate and be a little more precise, there is Jivatman, living self, sometimes just called the Jiva, the soul, the, the reincarnating being. Uh, and then there is Paramatman, supreme self, who dwells within each of the jivas. Uh, 
as their, as you said, their deepest, most authentic core. And uh, Swami Vivekananda calls the Paramatman, he calls it the soul of our souls. And he's, he's making an analogy with, you know, if we think of the soul as traveling around in the body, which it doesn't, it's not exactly right, but it's kind of our conventional way of talking. Uh, in the same way, you can see God as traveling around within the soul and uh, as uh, sort of the, the deepest essence and presence uh, there within the soul. And yes, ever, ever luring, ever beckoning. And then they were beautiful. And if I could add a fourth thing that I love about Hinduism, it's all of its imagery. And, you know, Lord Krishna playing his flute. And everyone wants to come around and hear it and listen to it. And uh, it, even the name Krishna, one reading of, of meaning of that name is the one who is attractive, right? Who is drawing all of us to himself. Very process idea as well, because it's a drawing, it's an attraction. It's not by force, right? It's not that you have to do this or else. You want to do it, right? You're lured toward it. Or you get distracted from it by the material world, but Krishna is always there, right? The God is always there beckoning. And then in terms of the, the witness, the companion, uh, there is a, a beautiful image I really like from the Upanishads of two birds sitting on a tree together. And uh, one of the birds is eating from the fruit of the tree. And uh, they say enjoying the fruit of the tree. Enjoying in this context basically means experiencing. Some fruits are bitter and the bird spits them out. Those would be our unpleasant experiences. Some fruits are sweet and the bird says, oh, I want some more of those. And, uh, you know, is very involved in eating the fruit. There's another bird who is sitting on the same branch just watching the first bird and taking in everything that's happening, right? The, it's interesting, there, there's, you mentioned the sense of witness, and then there's also witness, and it's both of those, right? You have this idea of there's the inner witness who's with us, who perceives and experiences everything as we perceive and experience it, often perceives it better and more fully because we're caught up in it, whereas there's some sense of, of somewhat of a remove uh, in the witness consciousness. But the, that inner bird, that again, is that, that's that Paramatman that's there with us all the time. And it's said that eventually that bird that's eating the fruit is going to stop eating the fruit because it's going to notice that other bird and see how beautiful that other bird is and become completely enchanted by that other bird and then realize they were that bird all along, right? That that is, that is their own true identity. That is their wholeness, as you were saying, what, what that initial lure is drawing us toward. So uh, uh, a further question here. In Diana Eck's book, Encountering God, she describes her love affair with, with Indian religion. And uh, I so appreciate that book and her story. She's a Methodist, you know, uh, a Protestant Christian, but a, a great scholar of Indian religion. She has a point in one of the chapters where she says, here's a kind of difference that I see in the Christian sensibilities that I know and Hindu sensibilities. And it's this, that some Christians have a real sense of the concreteness of Jesus. And in that concreteness, he was immersed in the thickness of life, blood, soil, wine, broken relationships. And incarnation for, for her, for that kind of Christian, has to do with finding God in, in the muddiness of things, the muddiness of life. So it breaks a purity code. You, you find God in impurity. 
And she said that in many of the Hindu traditions that she knew, there was a reluctance to see the divine in the muddiness, that the, the deities were kind of idealized, be- beautiful, um, perfect, pure. But I don't know if she's right or wrong. Do you have any sense of that? Any response to that? Uh, I'm not sure if she's right or wrong myself. I, uh, the first thing that comes to my mind as you talk about this sort of muddiness of life is the image of the lotus flower, which the way it's been explained to me multiple times by by people who grew up in the tradition is the lotus flower grows from muddy, dirty places. And from that, this beautiful, pure flower emerges. And that the lesson there is that, uh, you know, from out of all of these problematic aspects of our life, we get insight. We draw some truth that comes from that. I think of my own experiences with my father and, you know, uh, I've sometimes asked myself or I've been asked, you know, do you wish things had been otherwise? I, of course, wish that he had not gone through the suffering he'd gone through. I wish I could go and take that all on myself, right? I wish that uh, uh, many things had gone differently. At the same time, as I play out everything that happened, I realized that I would not be who I am now and the present would not be what it is now if not for everything that happened. So that muddy past is necessary for the lotus of the of the present and the future. The present's pretty muddy too sometimes, but you know, at least the whenever we reach enlightenment, you know, that 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 lotus will blossom. And so uh, I think that's there in Hinduism, but I think where I would agree with Diana Eck is that certainly in the way divinity is depicted. Um, we know from literature that Lord Krishna died, right? His physical body died. He was shot in the foot by a hunter who mistook him for a deer. Something that happens a lot here in Pennsylvania around uh, hunting season. And uh, and he died. His body uh, died and he went back to his loka, to his realm. But you don't see that depicted in Hindu art, typically. You don't see a lot, like you see crucifixes everywhere in uh, Catholic churches, for example, but you don't see a lot of pictures of Krishna with an arrow sticking out of his foot and, you know, maybe wincing in pain uh, from that. Uh, we don't, you, you see him smiling, you see him blissful, you see him joyful. So I think there is a little bit of a different sensibility there. In fact, I had a very good conversation about this recently with my friend, uh, you might know John Paul Sidner, um, comparative theologian, and um, he was actually talking about an experience. I, I think he preached in a church at some point and was talking about you know the God who suffers with us in you know, a very process theme. And he was talking to one of the parishioners afterward, and he was quite shocked to hear her say, what good does that do me? I want a God who's above it all and can lift me up out of it, right? So um, I think God is all of those things. I think God is the sufferer with us. Um, but then that there is also that in God, which is undefeatable. And you know, this is, of course, the thing we always end up as process thinkers debating with others when they say, well, what about this non-omnipotent God, right? What, you know, how, how can we guarantee then that good will eventually triumph, that beings will become enlightened and so on? And I think Hinduism is, is definitely uh, very much on the side of envisioning that of God, which is beyond all of this. And I think that's precisely so that people who are suffering here and now can identify with that and kind of escape from that, right? Not not really feel part of that. 
And uh, I can relate to that. I mean, a lot of how I dealt with what was going on with my father and how I've dealt with a lot of sufferings I've encountered in life since then was through escapism, right? I enjoyed science fiction, fantasy. I can put myself in a completely different world. And since I've learned how to meditate, I know how to detach myself from what's happening and say, I'm not that, I'm this. And so there is kind of a tension, I find, because uh, uh, I, I don't think it's a contradiction exactly, but when I talk to a lot of my Christian process uh, thinker uh, friends, uh, Christian uh, process theologians, it is very much about you know the suffering God. And uh, my sense is that, uh, yes, that's, that's comforting on one level, but you also want the God that's going to take you out of it all. I think one, one um, liability for the Christians who, who so emphasize the suffering of God is there's also a playfulness in God. <laughs> and there is joy. And so I think that is sometimes neglected in an overemphasis uh, on the suffering. And Hinduism strikes a better balance. Speaking of this, I, I do have an, another question. One thing that, that Diana Eck poses, she quotes the psychologist James Hillman on this. Hillman was critical of what he called the monotheistic consciousness that so emphasizes oneness that it cannot make its peace with manyness. So one God, one book, one savior, one right way of salvation, my way, it so happens. And it can't make its, its it can't be at home in multiplicity. It always has to reduce the multiple to a unity. And she, she said that in Indian culture, she found them better able to balance a legitimate understanding of the beauty of unity, but also a legitimate understanding of the, the beauty and joy of multiplicity. What do you think? I, I fully agree with that. I fully agree with that. And that kind of gets to the heart of, of uh, Hindu pluralism. And, and I think of process pluralism as well, that you know there have been pluralistic models like that of John Hick uh, that have been accused, rightly or wrongly, of actually obliterating diversity, right? Because everything is subsumed into one ultimate reality. Uh, and then there have been criticisms, on the other hand, of models of pluralism, which so celebrate diversity and, and uh, manyness that the question arises, yeah, but how do these all coexist in one universe, right? Is, is, is there, you know, is everyone going on to their own special world or you know, what's happening? And so there, there's a, uh, a nice sort of, it's a tension sometimes, but I think it is, is really ultimately a balance between unity and diversity, that, that these are both, each needs the other. And, uh, um, a tradition that's been on my mind a lot lately, because I'm, I'm teaching a course on it right now, but is uh, Taoism, which does a, such a nice job of saying that, you know, whenever you have opposites, you have to remember there's a complementarity. And there, there's, there's always a little bit of, you need a little bit of unity in your diversity and a little bit of diversity in your unity, or the whole thing's going to become unbalanced and break down. And I think Indian civilization and, and Hinduism in particular have done a great job of that, that, that things are one and many. And that that's just accepted as uh, that's that's the reality of life. We as process thinkers have a a Jewish ally. It's Rabbi Bradley Artson. I don't know if you know his work. Heard of him? Yes. But he 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 jokes. He says it, it's really much easier for a Jew to be a process theologian than it is for a Christian because you know we Jews we don't have to worry about the doctrine of the Trinity and things like that. Right. Exactly. The Christians that that's their issue. And he says it teasingly, but but 
but delightfully uh, and beautifully. I think I've heard you say it's really much easier for a Hindu to be a processed theologian. Uh, right. It's a much more natural right. mode for a Hindu. Uh, you want to say a word about that? Sure, sure. Because I see so many of my processed friends getting in trouble with Christian orthodoxy, uh, with with Christian more, more traditional Christian thinkers saying, well, that's not correct Christian theology and, you know, God is omnipotent and, you know, like uh, all kinds of objections given to it. So I feel that Christian theologians, uh, Christian process theologians often have an uphill battle in the Christian community. In my case with Hindu process thought, uh, Hindu process philosophy and theology, I have almost the opposite issue, which is something you verbalized earlier, which is, well, we already have that. (laughs) We have Ramanuja, we have Ramakrishna, we have uh, Chaitanya, we have a Chintya Veda, Veda Vedanta. We, we, why do we need this? You know, uh, because it, it so closely maps onto so many aspects of Hindu thought. So to me, it's just a very natural way of expressing or phrasing Hindu concepts in a Western garb for people who are more familiar with the terminology of Western philosophy and the issues in Western philosophy. So if you sort of situate yourself as a Whiteheadian, uh, you're signaling in a way uh, to your Western interlocutors that you know what what it means to be Hindu, right? In terms of the content, it's like, well, it's very much like you know you have this idea of an abstract ultimate reality, and then a concrete ultimate reality, and then you know the many beings like us that are in between those, and you know that's um, I, I I do think it is this a more natural fit almost. Like I sometimes say, Whitehead translates well into Sanskrit, um, and uh, and of course the, the other conversation partner here is Buddhism because I mean Buddhism is a type of process thought. I mean process with a lowercase p, right? It, it and there are a lot of affinities between various forms of Buddhism and uh, process, but I see them with Hinduism as well. And you know even these terms Hinduism and Buddhism. Uh, I think sometimes we we reify them too much, and uh, if we look back to the ancient period, there are a lot of Hindu schools and thought of thought that are have a lot of affinity with Buddhist schools of thought, and vice versa. Um, and uh, of course, you have the very common practice among just ordinary folks in India, even to the present day, of participating in multiple traditions. So you'll have you know families that are both Jain and Vaishnava. You know you'll have people who will go to uh, a Hindu temple, and that they might even go to a, a mosque, uh, also, right? Um, and uh, I'm quite certain that was the case when there were a lot of Buddhists in India as well. That you know, you, um, you would have people practicing Buddhism, but they would probably have a Vedic, what we would now call a Hindu wedding, or you know, celebrate festivals of the Hindu gods, and and so on. So um, I think that that whole thought world of India, Hinduism, Indian philosophy, it's a very good fit uh, with process. Whereas I I do see a lot of conflict between uh, process thinkers very often and sort of what are regarded as more mainstream Christian thinkers. Um, And uh, and I can relate. I mean, it was that kind of conflict, which was one of the reasons I didn't feel so much at home in the tradition uh, that I grew up in. Do you want to say a word, uh, Jeffrey, about uh, contemporary Hinduism and and issues of Hindu nationalism. Sure. And and do you know process thought cannot solve all issues, but right. I, I do wonder if a process Hinduism can offer uh, an antidote or a critique to to the worst aspects of it. 
Right, right. Sure, sure. No, well, because the thing about a process, uh, Hinduism, and uh, especially in the way that I've been articulating in, in my work is one of the chief emphases uh, of certainly of my own forays into Hindu process philosophy is pluralism. And uh, Hindu nationalism, uh, my sort of diagnosis of it is that it's a reaction to historical realities uh, that Hindus have faced. And uh, there's a a siege mentality. There's a feeling that Hinduism is under attack by Islam, by Christianity, by contemporary leftist or Marxist thought, and and so on. And uh, while I'm critical of Hindu nationalism, because I'm critical of any ideology that divides human beings against one another, uh, I'm not entirely unsympathetic. This this gets me in trouble sometimes. I'm not unsympathetic to the fears that drive it. Um, They they are uh, not entirely unfounded. Now, that's not to say that they are, you know, should be overblown, uh, which I think often happens, especially in social media. Uh, But what happens, I think, in Hindu nationalism is is what you find in, in similar ideologies around the world is you get a zero-sum game where, you know, you're either on our side or you're on the other side and, you know, uh, every, uh, you know, everything is thought of in terms of warfare, you know, whether it's social media or whatever you're doing, you know, you're trying to win points uh, and so on. And to me, I mean, the whole conversation is just exhausting. I, it's it's not spiritually enlivening or or uh, really uh, the, the kind of thing that is going to lead us collectively, us meaning all human beings, out of our current situation. It's going to keep us in that situation. And uh, yeah, I'll be the first to stand up and say, you know, when I think human, uh, you know, Hindu rights are being uh, abused or or people are mischaracterizing the tradition or treating it in a one-sided way, I'll, I'll criticize that. Uh, and uh, there may be people who think I'm Hindu nationalist for doing that, but I'm not. I just, I, I do think that in the Western conversation, Hinduism does just generally not get a fair hearing because most people just don't even really understand it very well. But uh, ultimately, yes, uh, ideologies based on the the idea that we are sort of irreparably divided as human beings aren't the way forward because uh, the the planet has become a very it's, it's a very small village now. Right. It's you can't kind of avoid other people. We have to learn how to coexist. We have to learn to share dwindling resources and utilize them in smarter ways. And uh, in fact, uh, the climate crisis uh, only exacerbates the clashes across worldviews, you know, the so-called clash of civilizations, because everyone's scrambling for an ever, a piece of an ever shrinking pie, right? An ever hotter planet. And so ultimately I think any kind of national nationalistic worldview is, uh, is a dead end. And process thought with its much more organic understanding of reality, uh, and it actually fits well with what 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 I would call authentic Hinduism actually teaches, which is the oneness of existence. It's not only human beings. We have to think about all the other life forms on the planet as well. They are also centers of spiritual consciousness. So uh, I think process thought fits very well with this. And the whole idea of ecological civilization, a lot of the kind of work John Cobb has been doing, I think it not only fits well with, but I, I think in many ways it, it is the the kind of natural outgrowth of what I understand to be a traditional Hindu worldview. Whereas I think Hindu nationalism is not really rooted in 
Hinduism per se. It, it's it's not a religious perspective. Like it's it's not a biblical fundamentalism, for example. It's not saying you know uh, that uh, oh everyone has to believe X. Uh, it's really a political movement and uh, a political reaction against uh, things that Hindus have experienced. And uh, yeah, we have to find a way. Again, all of us human beings, uh, Hindu and non-Hindu, to see beyond. Uh, the kind of differences that divide us, or our future is not very bright on, on the planet right now. Thank you so much. And let's bring this conversation to a close by returning to uh, your father. Okay. And, and, and to the question of life after death. Yes. Personally, I'm in the process camp that does think there's a continuing journey after death. And I've learned a lot from David Ray Griffin on this subject in his work in parapsychology, and um, I appreciate it. And I remember from uh, my Houston Smith days, he talked about two images of the final destination available in a Hindu context. Uh, the drop of water is reabsorbed into the ocean and no individuality left. And the journey continues until there's everlasting communion with a sense of individuality retained. Mm -hmm. And he, what he said was both are available in a Hindu perspective. That's correct. Both are available. Uh, how about you? D do you have um, a preference for one of those two images or where are you on that matter? Uh, I've thought a lot about this. I've thought a lot about this because not only are these two visions uh, it both exist in the Hindu tradition of the ultimate destination, but they're distinct practices associated with each. Uh, they are, um, it, it comes down to a question of like which of the yogas, which of the spiritual paths you, you plan to tread. And uh, I have to say that uh, I have a certain ambivalence about these two images. Uh, some days I'll tell you drop of water in the ocean for sure. Other days I'll say, well, I'm kind of enjoying this whole adventure, so I'd like to see it go on. And um, I, I am leaning, I think, towards the view that, uh, well, let me put it this way. It's not clear to me that there's a point beyond which one of those becomes irrevocable and you can't then opt for the other one, right? So, um, the drop of water in the ocean, a common image from Advaita Vedanta, you realize you never were that separate individual. Does within the empirical universe, there still remain the possibility of you kind of picking up that suit of that personality, that soul, and continuing with it? Um, I think that there are some things in the Ramakrishna tradition in particular, which suggests to me that this might very well be possible. Because there were stories, for example, where uh, Sri Ramakrishna said that um, when he first met Swami Vivekananda, when Vivekananda was, was not yet a Swami, he was still a young man named Narin, Narendranath Dutta, that when Ramakrishna met him, he uh, behaved as if he had seen him before and that he already knew him. And he was saying, How, you know, why is it taking you so long? To, why is it taking you so long to come and meet me? And, and so on. And Narin thought he was crazy, but he felt still drawn to him and continued on and became his disciple. But uh, Ramakrishna would tell the story of residing up in the heavens and there are seven stages the saptarishi the seven uh 
wise beings who emanated forth uh, the Vedas at the beginning of our cosmic cycle. And they're believed to be in, a, in an enlightened state and they're, uh, you know, up beyond, you know, time, space and causation. And they're sometimes sim symbolized by the seven stars of the Big Dipper, what we call the Big Dipper in, in the West. And according to uh, one of the stories Ramakrishna told, he came to one of these seven sages and sort of uh, found him deep in meditation and like bugged him until he <laughs> came out of meditation and said, what is it? He said, I'm going back down to earth now. And you promised me at some point long ago, you would come with me. So he says, okay, I'll come with you. And then he says that sage was Vivekananda. And so um, you get the idea that it, it might be possible to enter into this very profound state of non-dual awareness and then re-emerge from it at some point and uh, re-enter the play, right? re-enter uh, duality. And Ramakrishna himself often indicated a preference for very much for the second of the two options, the, the interrelationality, the sweetness of the relationship of, of bhakti. Uh, he quoted another uh, Hindu poet uh, in this. He said, uh, I want to taste sugar. I don't want to become sugar. <laughs> so uh, I can see the value of both. I can see the value of both. I think for many years I was more drawn to Advaita and that sort of water, drop of water going into the ocean because I was so aware of the pain of material life, right? Because of everything that had happened with my father, that kind of, you know, vanishing out of all of that was very, very attractive. Uh, as I get older, I find I do enjoy my relationships in the world and I, I've feel I've developed a better ability to, to balance the two, to maintain that sense of inward detachment, you know, this is all a play, while being part of the play and participating in it. So that's a long roundabout way of saying, I really don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm, I'm glad you asked the question because it's uppermost in my mind, actually. I've, I've been thinking about it a lot lately, that how do we conceive of this ultimate goal? And maybe the way we conceive of it shapes how we will actually experience it uh, in the long run. It could be that Julian of Norwich's famous saying, um, all will be well. Yes. And all manner of things will be well. Yes. Uh, maybe we can live from that trust and a wellness. Yes. And, and, and never completely know. Yeah. Um, uh, but thank you so much. And I'm sure glad that you entered into this play. Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, we're really grateful for you being here today and taking your time out. And hello to your to your wife. Um, and may may things go well for you, Jeffrey. Thank you very very much, Jay. And and the same for you. I really do appreciate this conversation. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Bye bye. Bye bye. <laughs> Conversations in Process is a podcast from Open Horizons and the Cobb Institute, hosted by Jay McDaniel. If you enjoy these conversations and would like to support the show, consider becoming a friend of the Cobb Institute or making a donation at cobb.institute. Or leave a review through Apple Podcasts to help others find out about the show. Thank you for listening.